Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3pm to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. It's great to see you this afternoon. Thank you for being here. One question to organize uh, the next few minutes around is simply this. Are we self-sufficient? Or are we spirit dependent? Just one question. Some, some talking, some referencing, some thinking, some praying and weighing up. One question. Which is it? How are we doing? These are the words of Francis Schaeffer. Suppose we had awakened today to find that everything concerning the Holy Spirit and prayer removed from the Bible. Now, That's not removed in the way that liberals would remove it, but that God had somehow really removed everything about prayer and the Holy Spirit from the Bible. Just think about it. If you woke up this morning, prayer and the Holy Spirit were no longer things according to God. Here come the questions. What difference would that make practically between the way that we work yesterday and the way that you would work today and tomorrow? What difference would it make in any majority of Christians' practical work and plans? Because when you think about it, aren't most plans laid out ahead of time? Isn't much work done by human talent, energy, and clever ideas? Where does the supernatural power of God have a real place? I was sobering when I read it last week. Back to the question. Just one question. Are we self-sufficient or are we spirit-dependent? I think it's probably the question, probably the question for Christians today. I think we Christians today, we need to be careful. Uh, if we're not careful, we'll, we'll just think we can go through routines and programs. We can get to the end and we could realize the Spirit of God was absent. Many of us, we don't feel the need to pray because we have unlimited access I mean, we, we literally carry infinity in our pockets. For some of us, our, our wealth even compounds the issue for us. We don't feel the need to pray. We don't feel the need to fast and to wait. Because we're more productive than ever. We're smarter than ever. We need something. It can be here tomorrow in the mail. We're okay. This leads into that question, are we self-sufficient, or are we spirit-dependent? Why do we need to live spirit-dependent lives? There's so many reasons. I'll name just three to try to get your attention with it. The Bible's clear that we must live, if we're going to be alive spiritually, we got to be dependent on the Spirit of God. The reasons are many. Here's just three. Friends, we have a commission from our King Jesus that we cannot complete. We have been commanded by God to take the news about who He is to all peoples, And we cannot do that work on our own. We have a commission that we cannot complete. We have a privilege that we cannot forsake. Moses used to talk with God on behalf of people. And now we have direct, daily, constant access to God. 
My friends, we cannot forsake the privilege that thousands and thousands and thousands of God worshipers longed for. We cannot forsake it. We have a God that we cannot fathom. Jesus promised that the Spirit would come and take all that He had done and said and make it plain to us. He would sit with us and He would open up the person of Jesus to us. He would help us to think about our God who is infinite and who is unfathomable. He will make Him fathomable to us. So we can know and grow the glory of God. We can know and grow in the glory of God every day if we'll just sit with Him. It's that one question. Are we self-sufficient? Are we spirit-dependent? Uh, we've, we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks as a church family. The Bible talks about God's redeeming work in three distinct stages. Redemption anticipated. The Spirit of God was present in and amongst with Israel. Genesis to Malachi. And the, the presence of God. I mean, God's people used to have it. Adam and Eve had it in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. They had this direct access to God. They could walk with him in the cool of the day. But because of sin, they were kicked out. God's not going to allow his spirit to live with sin. So we're anticipating the redemption through the Old Testament. Then redemption's accomplished. The spirit was on Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now today we're, we're studying even more. What does it look like for the redemption of God to be applied where we consider the spirit of God in the church? In the church. Acts to Revelation. So this is it. The re redemption applied. The Spirit in the church. Acts to Revelation. So in the book of Acts, the text that Taiwo just read for us, in Acts, Jesus, who possessed the Spirit of God, poured the Spirit out on His people. In a way that His people, they wouldn't have to run through any earthly mediator in order to talk to God or to hear something from God. The Spirit is now going to be inside of God's people you're wondering, like, what does that mean? What is that going to open us up to? Like, what do we have? That's, that's the next few minutes of this message here. The same Spirit that guided Jesus is here to guide the church. It's here to guide us in this room. Jesus is our substitute. The Spirit is our guide. Are we self-sufficient? Are we Spirit-dependent? Let's get into it. Uh, have a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I want to just point out a few things for us. See, after giving the, the Great Commission in Acts 1.8, the first thing that Jesus tells people to do is to wait. He tells them to wait because what he is inviting them into is something they will not be able to accomplish in their own strength. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates. This is verse 7 that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The idea is that people would represent who Jesus is from where they were standing to the very edge of the earth. And they're told to wait. We wonder why wait. We even wonder why not just give them the Holy Spirit right here. Jesus, you're standing right before him. Just give it to him. He tells them to wait. In fact, we understand they, they probably waited about 10 days. A prayer meeting that lasted 10 days. A waiting room that lasted 10 days. Sitting around and anticipating that lasted 10 days. Probably let them soak in the fact that they were indeed powerless without the power that was coming through. To know what you're supposed to do and not be allowed to act on it for a period of time just to steep that fact in your heart and your mind. God wants to do something through me that I do not have the ability to do. I'm going to wait. 
He's showing him the Holy Spirit's the one who was going to build the church. Jesus told him to do nothing until he sent power from heaven. So let your eyeballs scroll across to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And let's study these verses in a little more detail. Check out verses 1 through 3. It's amazing. In the Old Testament, when God's special presence showed up, it showed up in fire. And what we see here, God, God, in the Old Testament, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush of fire. He led his people through the wilderness, through a burning column of fire. When he gave them the law, there was fire in the background for that giving. When he came to dwell in the temple, fire fell on the temple. The fire was terrifying. The fire was fatal. You couldn't touch it or you couldn't look at it. And what's amazing about Acts chapter 2, this fatal fire, it now rests on the people of God. Every time God had shown up throughout the Old Testament, fires accompanying him, an all-consuming fire. A fire, he is a fiery God of love. His love will come through and it will burn up anything that isn't coming from love, about love, or for love in the end. He will refine. And here we are in Acts chapter 2. Every believer, look at verses 1 through 3. Every believer is, is a burning bush. Every single believer is a place where the presence of God is happy to dwell inside of them. And the fire is not consuming them. The fire is giving them life because Jesus had already gone to the cross. Jesus has already paid the penalty for sin. Jesus had already, uh, Jesus had already consumed within his own body the fiery judgments of God. So now there's nothing but the presence and the peace of God left for us. Fire is resting on the people. I mean, there's a, the, the great probability is we do not appreciate the magnitude of this fact. We do not appreciate the fact, like I do not appreciate the fact enough that what we have today, my friends, thousands and thousands and thousands of people who worship the one true living God, they were born and it was spoken to them. This is God's world. It has been wrecked and ruined by sin but he has promised to come through and he will come to us and we will get to be with him again. They lived their lives in expectation of that promise and they died not getting to see the fulfillment of it. And you and I are sitting here this afternoon in London in the fulfillment of what they spent their whole lives waiting for, hoping for, depending on God for, and dying not having the fulfillment of what you and I sit here and enjoy this afternoon. Acts chapter 2 is that moment. They didn't know what it was, but they would just spend their whole life anticipating. One day God's going to set this right and we're going to have the presence of God with us again. And we have it this afternoon. When Paul was talking with people who thought very little of themselves and their gifts, he said, don't you realize the value of you? You have this treasure of God in this little earthen vessel here. When he was talking to people who treated sin casually, he said, do you realize that you have the spirit of God inside of you, that you're the temple of the living God? The great probability is I, we do not appreciate the magnitude of what is told of us right here. So then you see verse 4, you're looking, you're looking at verse 4, you're like, what in the world does verse 4 mean? And then you look at verses 5 through 11 to get some context. You see people doing this thing. They, apparently they were speaking in tongues. Next week, uh, the sermon is all about the spiritual gifts, and this is going to be part of it, so we're not going to go too deep into it here. You hear this and you think, oh, okay, that's just Pentecostalism. People are talking in tongues. Some of us are so new to this 
worship of God thing. That's something we've never heard of, and that's okay. Nothing to get jammed up in just yet. You say, was this speaking in tongues? The answer to that is yes, but no. The tongues were other languages. They were unknown to the speaker, and but it's as if I'm talking to you, and we're all from these different cultures. We're all from these different tongues or backgrounds, and as I'm talking, I'm speaking Southern American English, and each of you around the room, you are hearing my words in your home language. You're hearing it with the inflection and the style and the voice. That's the event. Fire of God has come down. It's resting on the people of God. Peter stands up to preach the word of God, and everyone standing around is able to understand. That's the big idea. We need to think about this. It is a massive fact that the gospel, when it was first preached, was preached in all languages simultaneously. This means, this means there is not one norm culture and everything else has to migrate to it. Um, Lemon Sane is a, was an African uh, professor at Yale. He used to be a Muslim. He actually converted to Christianity, became an incredible apologist where he would help speak on the relationship of Christianity and Islam. And Sane points out uh, that Muslims are very quick to tell you that the Quran cannot be translated. The only way to understand the Quran is you have to learn Arabic. The Quran won't come to your culture. The Quran won't come to your language. The Quran won't be understood by you. No, for you to have access to Allah, you're going to have to learn Arabic. And you're going to have to take on some of that culture. And you're going to have to journey to that God because that God doesn't move to come to you. We think about the implication of this as far as, 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 far as Islam is concerned. If, if you want to understand God, you have to learn their language. You have to take their culture. And Christianity does the exact opposite. It is beautifully unique when compared with Islam. When the gospel is preached, all languages are able to have access to it at the same time. This means whenever Christianity comes into a culture, Christianity purifies the culture. Christianity uplifts the culture. Christianity burns off the particular sins and stains of that culture and fills it with grace and allows it to be the highest fo ideal form of that culture. It's incredibly significant. The gospel is preached in all languages at the same time. What Pentecost means, what Acts chapter 2 means, it means that no culture is the right culture. No culture is the Christian culture. And we're sitting here in this little international church this afternoon, looking around, I don't know, 8, 10, maybe 12 different languages, cultures, tribes, or tongues represented in this room. Acts chapter 2 means one is not the best. We have all of this in common. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. And when Christianity was first spoken, when the gospel was first spoken at Pentecost, with the Spirit of God resting on the people, there's not one culture that everyone has to migrate to and be like to be a Christian. No, it forms a unique Christian culture. And you continue to read the pages of the New Testament to learn, man, that's going to require some working out. We're going to have to get alongside of each other and be like, man, how you expect leadership to go in this culture is different than how they expect leadership to go in that culture. We have to figure out what it means for us to be leaders gathered under Jesus and to do this together in real time. Pentecost means one culture is not the right culture. And it means that one culture's emphases or worship styles or leadership styles don't have to be normative for everybody. Acts chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, you see he's 
Peter now stands. Peter, the same one who was constantly putting his foot in his mouth. Peter, the same one who courageously said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then he's out telling people he never heard of the guy. Peter's changed. Not because he's dependent on himself, but because the Holy Spirit's come into his life and changed him incredibly. Peter's changed. And Peter goes on to preach a sermon about who Jesus is. At the end of the sermon, people call out, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized. By the way, the number 3,000 is incredibly significant when you see this. Because when the law was given on Mount Sinai, 3,000 people lost their life because they could not fulfill the law. And here at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is given through the cross, through the blood, through the sacrificial death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, now when Jesus ascended to heaven, pours out his Spirit on the church, when his spirit comes through, there's not the taking of life, there's the giving of life. Think about these things. We have fire. We have 3,000 not losing their lives, but 3,000 gaining their lives because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes through and life comes through with it. Because Jesus absorbed the fire of God's wrath so we could get the fire of new life and power. Then scroll on to Acts chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. God foretold how he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. You go read the entirety of Joel chapter 2. It's a prophecy speaking to this. You got to see this happening. Now you see fire resting on the people of God, not consuming the people of God, resting on the people of God. You see people speaking in tongues. You see clarity. When the presence of God is here, people aren't confused, wondering what, which way should we go? Is that legitimate? Is that out of order? You see clarity. You see clear communication. People are able to understand Jesus, they're able to understand their sin, and they're compelled to take the next step. Friends, this teaches us an important principle that we have to learn, and we have to carry this in our city, as we feel like a marginalized and oppressed minority, a group of people standing for King Jesus in the midst of cynical, skeptical, secular culture. Before heaven comes to earth around us, it comes to earth in us. My friends, get some of this. We have treasure in earthen vessels. Before the light is going to shine so all can see, it's going to have to shine in us first. Moses glowed with glory. Jesus glowed with glory. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, We all with unveiled faces beholding in a mirror the glory of God. We are being transformed from glory to glory. There ought to be something about my life as your pastor where you can see more of God's glory in me after a season and after a season and after a season. What the text says is going on here. Just like you ought to be able to look at me, I ought to be able to look at you, and we ought to be able to look at one another and see, look, the glory of God is coming. How do you know? I'm looking at people being renovated by God. I'm looking at people whom the glory of God, the very fire of God is taking up residence in them. Goodness, we met four years ago. You're barely the person you were then. Glory of God's coming to settle with us. God's glory is not a reflection from above, but an outbursting from within now. The fire is within. So we're not holding up to some tradition, just trying to like conjure the fire. No, the fire is here. It's resting. Totally changes our relationship with God. We don't have to think, oh, God is out there somewhere. Man, he is for me. Let me tell you the truth. He is for me. He thinks about me. He is lovingly watching over me today. Yes to all of that and more. He is with you. He is in you. The fire of God, the very presence of God is here. It's a lot of power. I mean, we were talking about an astounding amount of power. The power to, to take a broken heart and to heal it. 
We're talking about the power to take the, the dysfunction and the discrepancies and the confusion we feel in our minds and to obliterate it and cause it to disappear. We're talking about the power that can heal depression. We're talking about the power to build relationships. We're talking about the power to fix marriages. We're talking about the power to cause someone to be courageous, even though they might be tempted to cower under the weight and threats of an HR board to take a coworker to lunch and just say, let me tell you about Jesus. This is an astounding amount of power that we have access to, friends. It's astounding. And we are a bit of a diverse church. We're coming together, different cultures, different tribes, different backgrounds. Some of us grew up in like conservative, reformed, evangelical word church traditions. Some of us are kind of coming in from the boundary of Pentecostalism and charismatic. So let me just try to shore up a few things related to this text. We'll hit some today and we'll hit some next week. Consider this. You might read this. You might be tempted to ask the question, well, have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And if you're doing a good job reading God's word, you would be wondering that in this moment, because over in Acts chapter one, you might have heard Jesus say those words for John baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So however familiar or unfamiliar this is to you, it's Jesus himself who uses the phrase baptized with the Holy Spirit. And if you want to be connected to him, you might be left wondering, man, where am I with that? Have I been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Is him, is her? A few verses help us to see this here, um, namely the, the text itself. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says, In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Seems to indicate when the Holy Spirit comes on someone, that's the baptism in the Holy Spirit. As Peter preaches his sermon and he gets down to the conclusion, he invites everyone to repent and to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit. The idea that receiving the Holy Spirit is something that's going to happen on the spot. You don't have to become a Christian and then study some courses, attend for a few years, give some money, and then you're going to get the download. No, you're just going to have it up front and right away. Verses that back this up, Ephesians 1.13, After that you believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Repent and believe, you received him. 1 Corinthians 12.13, For we are all baptized into one spirit and one body. We were all given the one spirit to drink. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, we are not his. So no, 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 you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit when you trust in God, when you repent of your sins, when you believe in Jesus for salvation, when you confess Jesus as Lord. In that moment, God takes you through a spiritual baptize, baptism into the Holy Spirit. But if confusion lingers and you're left wondering, I do see filling language in here. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Sometimes you might read Acts and you'll see statements like this one right here. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. What is, what is filling? Um, do I need to, am I going to have to top up? The answer is yes. It's a great question. When you study the books of Luke and Acts, you see that filling language occurs seven to eight different times and it is always separate from baptism. Uh, verses for this would be Luke chapter 1 verse 41. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21, Acts chapter 4, verses 8, Peter was filled, was filled with the Spirit in proclaiming to the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, there's a shaking in the face of persecution, and they proclaimed the word of God with, with boldness. Acts chapter 7, 55 to 56, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. It seems routine, almost boring. Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit as he speak, speaks to the blasphemous sorcerer. So fullness is separate from baptism. Baptism is a one-time event at salvation. You don't get to opt in or opt out. It's something God does to you. Fullness, 
fullness, rather, happens over and over and over again when you realize God is calling me to something I do not have capacity and resource for. We say, God, fill me afresh. Fill me afresh. Fill me again. Fullness of the Spirit is a repeatable event. Um, you would imagine your, your Oyster card. I don't know any of us still using this. You, the tap to give on the credit card. Um, whenever, whenever you're going around the tube, the only way that you're able to keep going is you keep putting money in that account. For the Christian life, the only way we're going to be able to run is if there's continual top-ups. We're continually coming to the face-to-face with the question, am I self-sufficient or am I spirit-dependent? We say, God, fill me afresh. Fill me afresh. So as we journey as a faith family in the days ahead, we're going to have to be careful of the two mistakes we can make regarding the Holy Spirit. Some of us are going to be tempted and prone to obsess about Him. Others of us are going to be tempted and prone to ignore Him outright and altogether. This was uh, said by Charles Ryrie. The solution of today's problems in the church The way to solve the Christian's individual problems, the solutions to all of our problems, is a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the antidote for every error. He is the power for every weakness. He is the victory for every defeat. He is the answer for every need. He is available to every believer, for he lives in his heart and his life. He is the answer and the power we already have been given. His name is the Holy Spirit. What hurts in you? What aches in you? What feels broken in you? What feels like it needs to be healed and repaired? Well, Jesus is very important. He is the substitute who went to the cross to die for your sins. The Spirit of Jesus is here and available to help, to comfort, to lead, and to guide. Jesus saves. What does the Spirit do? Let me give you a few ideas. The Spirit marks a shift. The Spirit marks a shift from a few of God's people to all of God's people. The Spirit marks a shift from limited power to unlimited power for the church. The Spirit marks a shift from one nation to all nations. The Spirit is available. The Spirit is available to enable the church to experience God's presence, to obey God's commands, and to fulfill God's purpose. The Spirit is here, my friends, to respond to sin. He reflects the pleasure of God in our obedience. You see this in John chapter 1, verse 32, and John chapter 3, verse 34. He also reflects the displeasure of God in our disobedience. The Spirit's present in Judges chapter 13, verses 24 to 25. My friends, when we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. When we sin, we lie to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5.3. When we sin, we resist the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51. When we sin, we defile the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19-20. When we sin, we quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19-20. And when we sin, we insult the Spirit, Hebrews 12. Hebrews 10, verse 29. And yet, the Holy Spirit is here to regenerate us, to give us life. The Holy Spirit is the one to bring new life to God's people. What happens at regeneration? Acts 16, 14, the Spirit opens our eyes. Then Titus 3, 3 through 7, the Spirit changes our hearts. Then John 6, 44, the Spirit enables our belief. And then the fulfillment of what we heard a few weeks ago, Ezekiel 36, 22 to 23, the Spirit transforms our lives. Have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit do this? Spirit sanctifies. Spirit unites our lives to Christ by His presence being in us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 And sanctification is driven by the entire Trinity working on behalf. Ephesians 1.4 The Father planned for us to be holy. Ephesians 5.25-27 The Son died to make us holy. And 2 Corinthians 3.16-18 The Spirit works in us 
for us to be holy. The Spirit does this by sanctifying us, by pointing us to Jesus Christ. And as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our past sins, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. We are purified of present sins, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. And we are empowered over future sin, Romans 8, 9 through 11. The Spirit is here to change our desires, Romans 8, 5. We'll just change the things you care about if you lean in down. He develops our disciplines, Galatians 5, 16 to 18. He gives victory over sins. So because of the Holy Spirit, we can live by the Spirit, Romans 8, 13. We can battle in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 12 to 17. And we can pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6, 18. Because the Spirit of God is here to comfort. The Spirit comes alongside of us. The Spirit is our advocate, is like a lawyer in the courtroom of heaven, pleading our case on our behalf. The Spirit says when the accuser comes, the Spirit says of you and me, you take a seat right here, I will speak to this. The Spirit's our strong comfort, like a friend in tough times. The Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit takes all that Christ, made, Christ said and did and makes it known to us. You see this all throughout John, John 14, 15, and 16. The Holy Spirit guides. He leads God's people to accomplish God's will. Romans 8, 13 to 14. The Spirit guides individuals. Acts 8, 29. The Spirit guides the church. Acts 15, 28, 20, 28. Spirit intercedes. Takes so much comfort in this, Christian. When you return to God in prayer, kind of stumble into it thinking, man, it's been too long since I've been here. I want you to be comforted that the Spirit of God has been interceding for you the whole time. God wants you, and God will have you. God has given you His Spirit who rests inside of you to plead your case to the Father, to carry up your every need, to tell the Father what hurts, to ask God for help, to ask God for provision. God wants you. He has put His Spirit in you. Even when you are not actively focused on Him, you take heart. Romans 8.32, the Spirit is there interceding for us. Romans 8.26-27, the Spirit intercedes within us. Romans 8.28, the Spirit intercedes for our good. The Spirit is at work in our prayer lives even when we're not actively praying. He conforms our prayers when we do pray. 1 John 5.14-15. And he transforms our lives, Romans 8, 29 to 30. Getting on to the end, so just listen to this. The Spirit unifies. The Spirit creates a profound oneness in the people of God, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. That's going to be necessary if we're going to see the likes of Acts chapter 2 happen, where all these different cultures, languages, backgrounds, and tribes, if they're all coming together and they're all hearing, there's going to cause some working out is going to be needed next. How the Spirit works in the church, He destroys barriers, Acts 15, 22 to 28, Ephesians 2, 17 to 22. How does He work in the church? He brings peace, Ephesians 4, 3 through 6, and He works within the church. The Holy Spirit is here to bring about unprecedented unity for us here in this room and for Christians across London. You see this in Acts chapter 22, verses 44 to 47. The Spirit is here to, to, to wrought unselfish dependence on one another in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Importantly, as this steeps in our hearts and the story is so sweet, the news is so good that we just can't keep it to ourselves. And when the cup is all the way at the top, 
just starting to tip over and overflow, we remember then the Spirit is here to empower witness. The Spirit gives us a purpose. That purpose was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and it's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, to show and tell the world who Jesus is. The Spirit fills the church to complete the mission of God. John chapter 20, verses 21 to 22. Jesus outlines the message. It's Jesus Christ in our place. Jesus explains the method. Start local, go global. Jesus promises the means. The Spirit will empower. And the Spirit is here today, my good friends, to fill us with power. So in conclusion, one question. Are we self-sufficient or are we spirit-dependent? Spirit of God wants the world for Christ. Spirit works in our lives to develop us, to know Christ and to know other people and for the Him to be able to flow through us. Without the Holy Spirit, we have nothing. Without the Holy Spirit, all this will ever be as we come together, perfunctory routines, doing some duties to God. With the Holy Spirit, this is power. With the Holy Spirit, this becomes a vehicle for his transformational power to flow. And in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity for prayer. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to God all across this room. And this transformational power is available today. You have to ask for it. It's available. It's here. It only needs to be asked for. My dear friends, in conclusion, God has given us more than we could ever imagine. We ask God for comfort and he gives us a comforter. We ask God for help and he gives us a helper. We ask God for guidance and he gives us a guide. We ask God for wisdom and he gives us the spirit of wisdom to inhabit us. We need to consider what a valuable possession and resource we have in the Holy Spirit. We end where we began with that question. Are we self-sufficient or are we spirit dependent? God has given us his spirit to overcome that self-sufficiency and make us dependent on him. I'm going to invite the band to come forward as we transition to some time to respond to God's word this afternoon. Do you need to respond to this? Uh, the Puritans had a, a phrase for this. Um, the same sun, a uh, big ball of fire that used to be out there, the same sun, the same sun that melts the ice, bakes the clay. So this is not a neutral moment for us. Faced with the, the question, are we self-sufficient or are we spirit dependent? No one gets out of this neutrally. You hear the word of God and you sense what the spirit is starting to pull on in your heart and you turn to him right now and you yield to him and you allow the, you allow the warmth, even the heat of God's word to melt those parts of your heart and you yield right now. Or you harden yourself by refusing to respond to who God is and what he has available to you this afternoon. Are we self-sufficient or are we spirit-dependent? Prayerfully thinking of you in this moment that we have together, I have a few questions I just want to ask across this room. 
This isn't between you and me. This is between you and God. It has implications for how we live with one another, but it's not about us. What area of your life is right now being lived outside of the dependence of God? I don't say this to you as somebody that's got my stuff totally sorted. I'm very much in process right now. When it comes to your relationships, in what ways are you living in self-sufficiency or spirit dependency? When it comes to a nagging sin that Jesus has died for, are you living in relationship to that sin, self-sufficiency or spirit dependency? When it comes to your plans, your plans for the summer, your plans for this next year of your life, I ask you as a servant of God, do those plans reflect self-sufficiency or do those plans reflect spirit dependency? Word came to me, I don't know how this relates to the room today, but when it comes to uh, that grudge that you're carrying, does that grudge that you're carrying, does that reflect self-sufficiency or does that reflect spirit dependency? Wherever we are, whatever we're carrying, whatever we have, the Spirit is here in this room right now to help us. He is our helper. He is our guide. He is our comforter. He is here to testify Jesus to hearts. And you can feel him doing that around the room. And now, a few moments to sit in the midst of this and respond. You can sit where you are. You can kneel down. You can stand. You can lift your hands. You can... Respond however you need. And if an area of your life feels lacking, I invite you, please come forward for prayer and ministry. Group of people, spend time praying and reflecting. Maybe you come forward and someone here has a word for you, or you can just receive someone praying for a part of your life that is aching and hurting and needs spirit dependency in it. There's freedom here. He is unpredictable. He is wind and fire. He is here to meet with us, to comfort us and help us. So let me invite you to stand. Go ahead and stand up. I'm going to pray over us. And then I invite you to respond to God where you are. Come forward for prayer, however he leads. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful testimony from Scripture and the events of Pentecost. Father, I pray that you would convince our minds fully of the reality for what's available today. For all those different parts of us that we are living in self-sufficiency, God, help us to repent. God, we want you in the fullness of you. So we invite your Holy Spirit to come. For every broken heart in this, in this room, I pray your Spirit would come and provide comfort. For every question and plan that needs to be cast, made, and walked in, I pray that your Spirit would come into that situation and be a guide. For every error and every distortion and every bit of deception that we hang on to, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and speak truth to your people. Father, for all of those areas where we lack, where we struggle to be who you call us to be, we pray that your Spirit would come and be power and be strength for your people. We thank you that you want to be with us and you pursue us. Father, please help us to rest now for just a few minutes in your pursuing and redeeming love. Thank you, God. We're here to meet with you in the name of Jesus. Amen.